us bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father, a faith that you've provided each one of us as individuals as well as corporately. Father, thank you for giving us a place to worship you, a place of peace, a place where we can just fellowship in this way that really transcends life itself by dining on and digesting the very bread of life. What a tremendous privilege this is, Father. We're so grateful for this opportunity. We pray for those that are ill in our congregation. Uh, we pray for the, our extended families as well that might also be ill. We know that these things weigh heavy on our hearts, but we are encouraged knowing that your will is always done and that it's perfectly done. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world that need the same truth that set us free, to set them free. And we so appreciate, Father, the opportunity to evangelize them, that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is part four. I had no idea how long uh, this was going to go, uh, but certainly a very edifying uh, series that we've been on, Who Will Separate Us from the Love of Christ? Let's begin with something familiar. Go to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, this is a psalm of David. Uh, most of you know this psalm. I wouldn't be surprised if I pulled the congregation. Someone has this almost memorized, or at least in part, I would not be surprised. Psalm 23, 1, called the Shepherd's Psalm. Just a nice way to start off an evening. A nice brief Reminder, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a wonderful reminder. So much actually of what we've been studying in this series and even prior. Just so much. I mean, look at that last half of, the, of verse 6. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's like, I'm a member of the family. Forever and ever. And that's how we ended the last couple of lessons. May none of us ever become familiar with King David's words, for they are a source of encouragement, and peace. I mean, when I read that, I get an overwhelming sense of peace. 
and my soul. They are a source of, therefore, his words, encouragement and peace. In speaking of peace, just a few key points from Tuesday's awesome lesson up here on the board, sharing the good news. When you have the peace to let the chips fall where they may, and that's what it is, peace, they will see it and be drawn to it because it's a product of the one true God. In other words, and I think that was on the coattails of the idea of us having that sense of need to sell the gospel. And what the Spirit did was really put that out. Say, we are not selling anything. And um, what we do have, though, is peace as Christ gave it to us. He said, my peace I give to you. And when they see that, they're attracted to it. Real peace, not phony, not salesmanship, not religiosity, none of that stuff. When they see real peace in your soul, I mean, if you're a, a maniac and you say, I'm a Christian, but I'm a maniac, they don't see peace. They don't see the attractiveness of Christ. What's the attractiveness of being a maniac? It's, it looks to me, whenever I see a person that's at their wit's end, like all the time, it looks to me like they've got a perspective problem. Something's not right. And that's not attractive at all. I don't want that. If, if what you have is what I don't have, then let's keep it that way. Because <laughs> I don't want to hear that. Right? And that's what the Spirit was saying. I love the point because it really does give us the right perspective on how we are to be lights in the world. We're not supposed to, you know, charge ourselves up and be wee artificially. We're to be lights in the world. Well, what shines in us? Peace, love, Jesus Christ. Go to Philippians 2.13. I think so many people have it wrong. They think that once they become a Christian, they have to be, they have to like um, make themselves lights of the world. You don't have to be anything but one of Christ's own to be a light. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. Again, the point on the board, when you have the peace to let the chips fall where they may, and that's what it is, peace. They will see it and be drawn to it because it's a product of the one true God. What the Spirit's been pointing out in Holy Scripture as of late is something quite fundamental to a believer's very existence. And this evening's message is a bit lofty uh, in its scope. Um, we're going to talk a lot about life itself and how God uses life itself, the experience even, of life to sanctify us. 
that there's a reason why you had the day you had today. Mine was crazy. I, I raced in here late. Trying to catch my son's uh, track meet. And it's been crazy today. And God said, don't worry about it. And my prayer on the way over here was, it's your message. And I told Tammy, I said, when we were there, I said, God knows I want to see my son race. And here I am. So if the message is bad, just blame Sean. <laughs> That's the point. That's the moral of the story. That's what he told me to say. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> you guys all look at it, Sean, on Sunday. I hope you won. You didn't. <laughs> all that. What the Spirit's been pointing out in Holy Scripture as of late is something quite fundamental to a believer's very existence, and yet it's yet another product of the one true God. God uses us to His glory. We just saw that in the Shepherd's Psalm. Go to Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10. So in other words, if we think real high level, lofty-like, we realize that life itself even as individuals, we are not robotic. God knows from eternity past how we're going to live our lives, but he also gave us free will. So we're not robots. Um, and we each live an individual life that brings glory to God, especially when we're lights, especially when we share in the peace that we have every right to share in as adopted members of the family. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Did you see that? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. It means every, sing every single one of us has a purpose here. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This brings up another point that really ties into a lot of what we've been studying over the past couple years probably. These good works that Paul writes about are what bring glory to God amidst the perverse generation. How do you shine in the midst of this ridiculousness? Seriously. If shining, if peace is an element of shining, how do you have peace and how do you shine in this ridiculousness? Well, you do. And people take notice. We are lights in the world, according to Philippians 2.15, that have been prepared before the foundation of the world for good works, Ephesians 2.10. Again, what the Spirit's been pointing out in Holy Scripture as of late is something quite fundamental to a believer's very existence. It has to do with life itself, and therefore, by default, this supernatural act of sanctification. Up here on the board, this has been coming up. There are no shortcuts. God gives man, this came out on Tuesday, God gives man this thing called life and this thing called time, which no man can get around or rush through. And no matter how difficult it may seem at times, it's an act of His grace. Grace sanctifies us. 
last time I checked. He doesn't want you to try to rush through life. Life is not, look, life can be painful, but that's not life. Life is also meant to bring glory to God. And when you have a joy, when you have a contentment, when you have a peace in the midst of a perverse generation, this brings glory to God. Those aren't bad things last time I checked, right? Who does, I mean, is contentment good? Yeah. Is peace good? Yeah. Is joy good? Yeah. Those are all three good things, right? Not painful, good. And these are ways that you bring glory to God. My heart breaks when I hear people think that life is just all about suffering. Because it's not. That's a bad perspective. That is a wrong perspective. Do we suffer? You bet. Who, who here hasn't even suffered just today? Is that life? No, it is not. That's a bit of an insult to God. It's a bit of an insult to the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I'm going to give you my peace. Must have skipped over you. God gives such grace to who? The humble. So if you're miserable, maybe something's wrong. If your life consists of only pain and suffering, maybe you're arrogant. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you've forgotten your first love. I don't know. But what I do know is the point on the board, there are no shortcuts. God gives grace to the humble. And it's the humble person who seeks faith. And it's the humble person that receives faith. And so it stands to reason that it's this same humble person that isn't even interested in shortcuts. When they say, as it came out on Tuesday, by faith we say, yes, Lord, I am willing. Whatever it may be. You want me to go evangelize someone? Okay. Do you want me to be peaceful? Awesome. You want me to have a joy set before me? Sounds great. You want me to be content? Sounds even better. You want me to love my brother? You want me to love others as more important to myself? Okay. You want me to be blessed when I give more than when I receive? Sounds great. You want me to grow up spiritually when I suffer? Sounds awesome. Whatever you want, Lord, in this life, in this time that you've given me. Whatever is pleasing to you, whether I'm here or at home with you, I only want to do what is pleasing to you. That's the right perspective. That's the one that sets you free. You can't hang on to these dogmas that you developed when you were going through a tough time. You can't set in stone these ill-advised, awful things and say, this is my life and this is my lot. Says who? You? You, you fabricated that 20 years ago. You threw, in the you threw in the towel 30 years ago when someone burned you. Or you made a few mistakes and you came out, I don't know, 
Not smelling like roses? I don't know, but that's not God's will for you. God's will is for you to say whatever you want. An alternative or alternate perspective was also given to us on Tuesday on the idea of there are no shortcuts. We should stop now and thank God for this thing called time as it affords us his gentleness and a gradual learning that doesn't slam us into a state of shock or despair even. See, with the wrong perspective, time drags on. With the right perspective, you thank God. Thanks for taking the time to heal me. Thanks for giving me the word that is refreshing to my bones. Thanks for giving me another day to live where every breath is without pain. Because I know there's some child who was just born that every breath they take, they're in pain. Hmm. We should stop and thank God for this thing called time. Because time affords us the, the, the space to get beyond ourselves and then to bring glory to God by being light in the world, by revealing the peace that Christ himself said he gives to us, to his own. I think that's why I enjoy old people so much. Because most of them have gotten over themselves. Most of them are not wallowing self-pity. That's why I like old people. Because they have wisdom. The Bible says gray hair is someone you should listen to. They have wisdom. Someone to regard. We cast them off now like they're trouble. Such is our society and its progressiveness. We should now stop and thank God for this thing called time as it affords us his gentleness and a gradual learning that doesn't slam us into a state of shock or despair. Such an edifying lesson on Tuesdays, and I'm very grateful for it and for Scott's willingness to listen to the Spirit. With that said, we need to press on now with our series titled, Who Will Separate Us from the Love of Christ? As we know, this very title is a ripoff from Romans 8.35. We've read it several times now. I think one of the underlying themes of these messages as of late has been the following up here on the board. Do not despair. And again, this is a lofty message. We are thinking about life itself right now. Look at your entire life. Do not despair. A person abiding in the cradle of Christ's love shall not despair. We're going to look at Psalm 34 in a moment. It's when we lose our perspective, a.k.a. abiding experientially, that we lose our peace and enter into the horribleness of despair. It's when we lose our perspective that we lose our peace and enter into the horribleness of despair. A person abiding in the cradle of Christ's love shall not despair. Go to Psalm 34, 17. Psalm 34, 17. Contrary to what some people think, God does not want you to despair. That is not his goal for you. That is not the end goal of sanctification. 
If it were, we got, we're in for a heck of a ride in heaven, aren't we? Because that's what we call ultimate sanctification. Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and what? Delivers them out of all their troubles. Do you see that? Out of all your troubles, he will deliver you. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Well, this entire passage implies life and time, does it not? To be delivered, there's a point A and there's a point B. And a little thing called time in between. That may be 10 minutes in small situations. It may be 10 years in larger situations. Some of you are still in between. I know that because I know you. Some of you are still right here. Something happened at point A, and you're not at point B yet. Because the peace that God wants for you isn't there. He delivers you out of all your troubles. He's near the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. And for the record, do not beat yourself up if you do not find, or you do find yourself, let's say, wallowing in a bit of despair. I mean, who in here is going to say they've never been in a desperate state. So don't beat yourself up if you find yourself wallowing in a bit of despair. And I use bit on purpose. Remember, the Bible is full of statements that sound absolute, and in a sense, of course, they are. But you must remember that many of these statements speak of habits. I mean, who who in here is going to say you haven't not loved your brother. Because strictly speaking, if you just went verbatim and didn't understand what the Bible is saying about loving your brother, then I guess you don't love God either. So you have to remember that many of these demands, these hard statements in the Bible, they are speaking of habits, which means that as a rule of thumb, a believer ought not to despair. A believer ought not despair. But it doesn't mean that we have been perfected yet. And just a spoiler alert, um, I just wrote a blog titled Practice Makes Perfect. And I talk about some of that. We haven't been made perfect yet. So you got to go easy on yourself sometimes. It's real easy, um, which only exacerbates things. It's real easy to pounce on yourself and say, why am I not, why am I in despair again? May we be encouraged by our own honesty on this, as well as the honesty we see in the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth. Go to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Let's just be honest the way Paul was honest when he wrote this. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
Okay. The God of all comfort, what does that mean? It means he doesn't want you to be in pain all the time. It, do, it means he doesn't want you to be in a state of despair all the time. He doesn't want you to be depressed all the time. Otherwise, he's impotent. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, I believe that's the Greek word, perisouo, it means to overflow. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our what? Oh, you mean it's not just all about suffering? You mean life isn't pain after all? That the God who's not impotent is able to deliver you from said suffering? And if you're not delivered, something is missing. And it's not God's ability. It's yours. The thing that's missing is your perspective. Stop wallowing. Get out of your own way. That's some of the wisdom we can learn from older people, even in this church. It's one of the things I miss about uh, Bill Johnson so much. He always was happy. Lois is like, no, he wasn't. <laughs> That's a false statement. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> DJ's like, yeah, it's not true either. Do you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, yeah, a lot of things I'm sure that I don't care to know about that would have been properly accepted as reason to suffer. I don't know. I mean, look at, look at the pain he was in at the end. But you get the point. It's one of the beauty, the beautiful things about the spiritual life is that we may encounter things that are viable causes for suffering, but God doesn't leave us there. He says, I'm the God of all comfort, and I will comfort you if you let me. If you let me. Verse 7, And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. You see, this is Paul being honest. He's like, we were out of sorts here. We were desperate. We were beyond our strength. We were tapped out, choked out by life. Anybody ever been there? I have. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us. You see that? God is able. Amen? Yeah. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that 
thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. That's what I pray for for you. I, I pray for your perspective to be changed. Because I can't change your life. I can't insert myself in your life and somehow I'm going to magically change it. Nor do I want to. So my prayer is that your perspective is changed. So again, don't beat yourself up on any of this balance statement up here on the board. We all experience some level of despair from time to time, no matter how mature we might think we are in Christ. We just read that with Paul. I mean, his circumstances were really extreme, where death was actually an option. Um, but nonetheless, we all experience some level of despair from time to time no matter how mature we might think we are in Christ. So you've got to show yourself a little grace because there's a little thing called life and time. And for God to deliver you, the implication is you start here in some form of suffering, I guess, and he delivers you out of it. And when that happens, you grow in faith. Strength training, right? But you're not supposed to get stuck right here because the God of this world... The kingdom of darkness wants nothing more than for you to get stuck right here. Halt the presses, stuck right here. And you're in a sort of state of uh, suspended animation. You're stuck here, and you're still, the only thing you have is not deliverance, but suffering. And the only reason for it is because your perspective is stuck. And the kingdom of darkness is really good at getting you stuck in a rut. What the Spirit's been pointing out is that these ebbs and flows are normal in the process of sanctification. And to reiterate that softer point, do not become depressed just because you seem to battle with despair more than the next person. Besides, when I wrote that, I'm like, wait a minute, besides, you don't even know what said next person is going through. You have no idea. Oh, I suffer, and it's me, oh, mine, violins come out, you know, and the kingdom of darkness is like, yeah, you're stuck, you're stuck, you're stuck, you have it way worse. Oh, my word, you, you, you need to stay here for another couple of years. You need to stay right here for another couple of years because you're, I mean, you're way worse. You have no idea what other believers are going through. Not a clue, ever. So don't become overwhelmed. Just as we ought not judge others, we ought not judge ourselves inappropriately either. Life is filled with ups and downs. It's not as if God doesn't know this. He's even given us divine wisdom on the point. Don't believe me? What about Proverbs 24, 16? For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Wait a minute. What? Wait a minute. But the wicked stumble in time of calamity. What's the implication? That a righteous man what? Falls. Everybody says, oh, but a righteous man gets back up. Yeah, but the implication is that that righteous man, described in the Bible as righteous, falls. Falls. In the spiritual life, falling means failing to reach the mark set by God. You know what that very definition 
points to? Missing the mark? That's the definition of sin. That is the definition of sin, to miss the mark. That's what the word hamartia means. That's what it means, to miss the mark. So when you fall, you miss the step. <laughs> right? There's the step. Whoop. I guess I missed my mark. I was supposed to step on the step. I stepped out there. I fall down and go boom. I missed the mark. A righteous man misses the step. Seven times. If you know anything about numerology, that's like completeness. That means all the time. That means even a righteous person is good at falling and sinning and failing. And all the things that you're so depressed about and desperate about and beating yourself up about. And the kingdom of darkness is like, yep, keep doing it. Because I want you stuck right here. Because that's not sanctification. That's frustrating God delivering you. Do you know what the very definition of sin is? It's up here on the board to miss the mark. Since God is perfect and we are not, we fall often. Even the most righteous among us. So relax. When you fall, do not focus on the failure, but rather the grace afforded you in time of need to get back up. Do I really have to write the balance statement here? Do not premeditate sin. Do not premeditate sin. I'm trying to speak to a humble person right now. Not the horrible, arrogant jackass that says, Ooh, looks like I got a free pass right here. I'm going to premeditate a night of hellish, awful, destructive behavior. And then, like Pastor said, just relax, you know, because I failed. That's not a righteous person thinking. That's an unrighteous slob. That's the balance statement. I didn't write it, because this is more of an uppity lesson, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> I just don't want people premeditating, because people are sick. That's all. Back to the humble person. When you fall... Do not focus on the failure, but rather the grace afforded you in time of need to get back up. Proverbs 24, 16. That's what a righteous person does. Only Jesus never fell. As an adopted member of God's family myself, it is my duty to remind you of these facts, especially as a shepherd. We believers comprise one heck of a dysfunctional family. Why do you guys look all surprised? Everybody's like, this is news. <laughs> We're falling all over each other. When we fall, we don't just, you know, when we fall down a step, you know what we do? We reach for someone's shirt and rip it off, rip their sleeve off, and now they're missing a sleeve. Because we don't go down solo, do we? We're taking a few with us. When we're drowning in despair, what do we do? We drown everybody else around us. <laughs> I got to 
there's still some people like this is shocking to me. We believers comprise a dysfunctional family, at least to the degree that we miss the mark. We sin on a regular basis. That's what I mean by that. I don't mean that God's not able. I just know that we all sin and we affect each other, even as family. This is why love, mercy, and also forgiveness are so critical to the family structure. Love, mercy, and also forgiveness are so critical to the family structure. When we love like Christ, we forgive one another. In fact, forgiveness goes much further than just a one-time, you know, let's forget about it act. That's like the person who doesn't understand sin even. Forgiveness is an attitude. It's not just an act. Oh, I forgive you. It goes much further than that up here on the board. Forgiveness knits imperfect members of a family together. Can you imagine any family without forgiveness? I know some of them. And you know what? One's in California. One's in Florida. One's in Alaska. And they're all miserable. Because they probably miss each other. They probably long to fellowship, let's say. The greatest longing being to do so in Christ. And so, in my opinion, the, the one nobody talks about, the white elephant for folks like us, is the gospel. That tends to separate us. But Jesus Christ will forgive them just like he forgave you. Bring them into the family and now you're knit together on the basis of forgiveness. But loftier than that even. Forgiveness knits imperfect members of a family together. It fosters the unity of faith as something real and attainable in time. It is a primitive desire of the one who loves. That's what it means to love like Christ. And who suffers when you don't forgive? You do. What happens to your peace? It goes out the window. What happens to your state of desperation? It goes through the roof. Ever notice how long religious people cling to wrongs suffered them? It's almost like an art form. It's unbelievable. Religious people are famous for clinging to wrongs suffered. It's because of one simple fact. They are unforgiving because they are unloving. They are unforgiving because they are unloving. A loving person, one of the primitives of Christ-like love, I mean, it's why he went to the cross, is to forgive. It's why we see Christ in the Bible and all the religious people being really upset with it, dining with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. He could have railed against them, but he didn't. 
Unforgiving people are unloving. It's that simple. For the kind of love that I'm teaching from this pulpit right now is something that is given to believers only. Therefore, unbelievers have this problem by default. As I've taught you in the past, an unbeliever is a selfish lover due to the simple fact that the human flesh is inherently selfish and self-serving. It's all it knows. It's how it's made. Forgiveness to the human flesh. You ready? Forgiveness to the human flesh is a bargaining chip. A debt to be paid. I've known people that are so twisted that they want you to sin against them so that they have something on you. That is twisted. Maybe it's just the people I've run with. (laughs) I don't think so. Forgiveness to the human flesh is a bargaining chip, a debt to be paid. That's because without grace, the expression of godly love, Nothing is given freely. Without a gracious, regenerate heart, the human flesh operates under an economy of subjective morality. Let me explain this a little bit. What I mean to say is that since forgiveness is never truly freely given, but rather something given in exchange for something else, that's what an economy is, is a currency, Only the person holding the cards, the supposed forgiver, decides when sufficient payment has been made. Oftentimes, this includes groveling, begging, even enduring guilt-shaming at the hands of the so-called forgiving party. (laughs) That is not grace. That doesn't sound anything like my Lord. That is not grace, and therefore could never be an expression of godly love. Never. Can you imagine if you had to grovel before God for all your sins? How long would you be? You'd probably be longer on earth after you died just groveling because you're ridiculous. But he didn't make you grovel. That is not grace and therefore could never be an expression of godly love. Yet we believers as supernatural beings empowered by the Spirit of God are able to do just that. Forgive one another freely. Yeah. We are able. We don't always do it. And when we don't, we get stuck But we are able to forgive one another freely without strings attached. As soon as there's strings attached, you might as well say the strings are attached over this direction. Tie a bow here, tie a bow there. You ain't going. You missed the point. Forgiveness is free for it to be godly. And to my previous point and to the greater point that Christ's love is, 
what binds our spiritual family together. Up here on the board, again, forgiveness knits imperfect members of a family together. It fosters the unity of faith as something real and even attainable in time. It is a primitive desire of the one who loves. I don't know about you, but when I'm right with God, I want to forgive. I want to, I want to tell someone. If it's not implied, yeah, you're forgiven. I have no, you know, we're good. Love you. I want people to know that part of me. Why? Because that's the very best part of me because it's Christ in me. Sometimes it's the less vocal part of me. Oftentimes, you know, the unforgiving ass is the more vocal one. Why? I just, I told you before, we're all dysfunctional. But I know that for any of us, when we're functioning in Christ's love, we want to forgive each other. Why? Because we're not interested in who slashed who. Why an, a gaping wound exists between us. We just want it closed. It's the same thing with God. I mean, we ripped a hole in our relationship with God. Adam did. And technically, through sin, we all have. And God didn't say, well, you've got to meet me halfway. Or you've got to grovel. He said, you know what? I love you so much. I'm going to show you what true love looks like. I'm going to close the gap. I'm going to close the gap. And I don't care, necessarily. I'm going to close the gap. That's what true love looks like. True love just wants to close the gap. If one of us wounded each other, it's not important to point fingers. What's important is reconciliation. That's what love wants. This is what the apostle of love, John, often expounded upon. And this is where these habits come in. And he writes so strongly that you can be um, sometimes mistaken at what he's saying. I hope not. But the apostle of love, the apostle John, to him, these things are as simple as they are obvious. To John, it makes perfect sense that a person who is truly abiding in Christ's love, something nothing and nobody can ever tear from them, to John, this abiding implies certain fruit. Go to 1 John 4, 7. I'll show you what I mean. To John, it was that obvious. And at some point, it's going to become that obvious to you, if not already. That love gives. It's that simple. Love wants to give. Love feels honored to close the gap. To, to, to express grace. To express mercy and forgiveness. That's a privilege. That's not a bargaining chip. That is a privilege for a believer to experience. Are you kidding me? Ten years ago, I would have wrung that person by their neck. Now I'm praying for them. I can't even believe it. To John, this was very obvious. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. That's not a flippant romantic word. 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Yeah, that's how simple it was to him. Isn't it obvious, people? That's what he's saying. Beloved, isn't it obvious? Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Isn't this obvious, people? The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. <laughs> I love it. It's so pure. Go to verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So the Spirit's going to testify these things. Go to verse 20. He's going to say in our time and in our life here on earth, did you see what I just did in you? you just, I just gave you a perfect example from behind the pulpit. Ten years ago I would have throttled a guy. Today I'm praying for him. You think that's me? You think that's my flesh? No way. No way. The flesh wants to hold grudges and indefinitely. Pay up. You hurt me, mister. Pay up. You owe me something. That's not grace. And that is certainly not love. At least not biblical love. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love uh, his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Yeah, that's a commandment. That's how commandments work. Are we perfect? Nope. Read the blog. You're going to read some of this. This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Here's where we ended on Sunday, up here on the board. We love like the God-man. What we do as believers is the proof of, or evidence of, who and what we love. If we love the Lord, it is evidenced by the fact that we live for Him and His sheep. And I gave you this quote from this uh, gentleman, Ravi Zacharias. Uh, he sort of summarizes a lot of his own work this way. The supreme ethic of God is love. It's a wonderful way to think about God. I mean, what, what even motivates, if we can actually tap into that, what even motivates a God to become a man just to close the gap? To reconcile, knowing that there's nothing the people he's closing the gap with can do to reciprocate. Other than to say, I, I want you. <laughs> I mean, why, why else does God do the things he does? If he didn't love us, we'd have a big problem. He certainly wouldn't have saved us. This succinct uh, statement deserves our attention, but for qualifi qualification purposes, um, certainly not because it is on plane with the Word of God, because it's not. It's a man's expression. I, I personally like it, uh, and it gets us thinking, but it's not on plane.
plain with the Word of God, of course. Rather, it evokes much of what we've been studying now for three years, beginning with the Gospel proper. The Gospel, if nothing else, is an expression of divine love. That is how we should look at it. I mean, the Word says it, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He what? Gave. Because that's what love does. It gives. And He gave the utmost. Pretty much everything He had. Himself. He became a man and died for us. For our forgiveness. So that we could have this debt freely wiped away. Because that's what true forgiveness is. Free. And that's what true grace is. Free. And true grace, of course, is motivated by God's love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. As I've taught many times from this pulpit, up here on the board, love gives. It cannot help but express itself. That's how you know I'm convinced of this through experience and the Bible. Um, it's how you know that you have it because the Spirit will testify that you have it. You will know when you're expressing a godly love and the Spirit will let you know. Love cannot help but express itself. And uh, before we close, it's just as a counter to that. It's amazing why any Christian, quote, unquote, would have a problem with a statement regarding the evidence of love. That love gives and therefore bears fruit. I mean, I don't see how you could read 1 John 4, for example, and not come to that conclusion. These are the things that keep me awake at night pondering, and I invite you to reflect on me in closing. Why would any Christian have a problem with the statement on the board? Um, the reason, I suppose, is arrogance even being discovered, especially when it comes to Salvation proper. I'm saved. Um, but you don't pass John's litmus test. You don't love your brother. You don't love anybody. You love yourself. I don't care. I'm saved. Why are you so angry? Why do you not like that challenge set before you? Why do you not like that part of the Bible? Why do you try to twist Scripture every time it comes up? Why do you not like the idea of fruit? I love the idea of fruit. That God's going to grace us out with being able to be in the path of someone else's deliverance, maybe? That by means of righteous fruit, He's going to be able to sanctify the next person down the line? I love the fact. Up here on the board, an arrogant person doesn't want fruit to be considered as evidence of their saving faith. Why? Because they may not have it. 
as per Jesus, they prove themselves liars. Go quickly to 1 John 1, 5-7. Back to the apostle of love. An arrogant person doesn't want fruit to be considered as evidence of their saving faith. Why? Because they may not have it. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. What does walking mean? I've taught you this plenty of times in the past. Walking in of itself is fruit. We leave a wake. In this life, there's time and there's life, and we walk. And God sanctifies us this way. And if there's no Christian walk, true Christian walk, if there's no evidence at all, there's a problem. You see, an unbeliever, a professing unbeliever, a so-called Christian, doesn't want that to be the litmus test. That's the conclusion from the Word of God. That a professing Christian, an unbeliever, wants to walk their own way. And when they look in the mirror and see no fruit whatsoever, no free love, free forgiveness, no real grace, something is wrong and they know it. And I'll close with this. While an unbeliever doesn't have the assurance we have, we believers do. While we may not see perfect production of fruit, even the righteous man falls, right? Proverbs 24, 16. We do see it regularly. And a humble person always gives glory to God. And we're out of time, but I'll give you um, a favorite verse for a lot of people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am. You always give glory to God. Always give glory. That's something a religious person, a so-called phony Christian does not do. Is not interested in doing. Everything to them is a bargaining chip. Even something as fundamental has forgiveness. They play in a different economy. But we, true believers, as testified by the Spirit in a believer, always give glory to God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for truth that sets us free. Thank you for your patience during our time on earth, this thing called life, Father. Thank you for revealing to us the truth about why you've designed it so. Thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for delivering us.
Thank you for comforting us in time of need. We know that your plan is perfect for us, Father. We know that your love is perfect. We're so very grateful for your revealing these things to us and giving us that perspective that our Lord had while he was here on earth. We just ask for blessings as we take these things that we've learned, these perspectives, this wisdom, out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.